Christ is risen. Brothers and sisters, we have heard this morning the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the scripture readings that we have heard. The very word of God has told us the story. So what is left to be said? I recently heard an octogenarian minister in an interview remark that in 70 years of hearing Easter sermons, almost all of them were a major disappointment. Not because the quality of preaching today is in such a sorry state, but simply because our human words cannot help pale in comparison to the reality we celebrate today. Jesus, who once was dead, is now alive forevermore. There is no truth, essentially, to be added on top of what we have already affirmed in that Paschal reading. Christ is risen. The entirety of our faith rests upon the truth of those words. The message of the empty tomb leaves us speechless, able to say nothing, yet eager to say everything, because it changes everything. It's difficult to preach out of that condition, so I'm going to begin with a statement someone else has made, which I found very interesting. Uh, Fleming Rutledge is an interesting individual. She is a priest in the Episcopal Church, uh, yet she has made this fascinating claim. She says, if Jesus Christ had not been raised from the dead, we never would have heard of him. She points out that there were thousands, tens of thousands of human beings crucified by the Romans before the time of Christ, and we don't know the names of any of them. All of them were lost to history. They were forgotten. That was the point. That is what crucifixion accomplished, what it was designed to accomplish. This might seem a little strange to us today. We assume that by killing someone, you would only strengthen their cause. That's what all the movies say. You make somebody a martyr, right? And then people will rally to their cause. It would be easy for our modern minds to suspect that perhaps the teaching of Jesus caught on because he was crucified. There are two problems with that. First of all, the apostles did not primarily rally to Jesus' moral teaching. The heart of their message instead was the proclamation that Christ rose from the grave. Second, though, that's simply not how crucifixion worked in the ancient world and how it worked upon the ancient mind. Again, tens of thousands of human beings were simply erased from memory by this dreadful act until one man. Many of you will have heard preachers discuss the medical effects of crucifixion, seemingly simple act of nailing someone to the cross. It causes grave distress to multiple systems of the body. It is a slow and agonizing way to die. Maybe you have heard some descriptions of, of what might happen. But I wonder how well aware we are of the social factors at play. Crucifixion was a public event. It was as public as they could make it. They carried it out on a main street, main road, for everybody to see, to maximize the amount of people who would witness this, to maximize the humiliation for the, for the victim. And it was designed to entertain the crowds. It was a spectacle. They made this as a spectacle to deter people from committing similar crimes, to be sure, but it was more than that. It was a concentrated assault on the worth, the 
the dignity, the identity, even the humanity of the person on the cross. It reduced a human being to a ghastly, revolting, disgusting thing. The message was clear. This wretch is not worthy of the name human. They deserve to die as if they were a mere insect we might treat this way. We have no issue impaling a worm on a hook and throwing it in the lake to use as bait. From the cross, Christ himself referenced Psalm 22, the same psalm that says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. The cross was able to erase tens of thousands of its victims by its horror and agony and also by its shame. You may have heard preachers talk about the difference between our culture and what we call shame, honor and shame cultures. The concepts of shame and honor certainly do exist in our own culture. They've been the driving force behind what we call cancel culture, for example, but our legal system isn't built on honor and shame. So we as Americans simply cannot fathom those cultures where, for example, a young woman survives rape only to be killed by her own family because in that culture what was done to her is so shameful that even her family needs to rid themselves of her. But that is how the cross worked. That is what the cross did to thousands of people without fail. So horrifying, so gruesome, and so shameful was the cross that even loved ones would be left with no option but to carry on as if the person had not existed, to do as Peter did, to deny any association with the crucified. It doesn't matter if the victim is wise or foolish, rich or poor, high or low, strong or weak, stripped naked, beaten until the flesh is ground meat, nailed to a cross, writhing in agony. They all look the same, if you dare look at them. And so it was that the names of thousands of crucified people were simply forgotten until the name of Jesus of Nazareth was proclaimed as the only name given under heaven by which we must be saved. So Fleming Rutledge is certainly correct. The ultimate reason the cross failed was that Christ rose from the dead. If he did not rise from the dead, He's surely right that we never would have heard of him. And yet, reflecting on the texts which we just read, I do think we see something clearly different even during the crucifixion of Christ. Some were able to see it already. There are some unexpected reactions among the crowd in the book of Luke. Of course, there are the expected reactions. We see the usual scoffing and shaming. Beginning in Luke 23, verse 35, we hear the same insult parroted by three different sources. Verse 35 says, The people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. Those rulers are the religious leaders who instigated this whole thing, stirred up the crowds, put pressure on Pilate to crucify him, they are reveling in the fruit of their labors. And they are trying, in a sense, it's almost as if they're trying to get this chant started. Save yourself, mocking him. The Roman soldiers who crucified him join in with the same taunt of save yourself in the next couple of verses, 36 and 37. Luke says the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
even from the cross next to him. On one side, Jesus hears the same refrain. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Even a crucified criminal joins with the rulers and soldiers in mocking Jesus. Maybe he's trying to deflect some of the shame from himself. I may be in agony and humiliation, but at least I'm not like this Jesus guy that everyone's laughing at. It's as if the leaders, again, were trying to start that chant of save yourself, and it started, we see it start to catch on, but it only goes so far. From the other side of the cross, the second criminal says to the first one, shut up. Verses 40 and 41. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed, we justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. This man has done nothing wrong. So even as the verdict of guilt and the sentence of shame are laid on Jesus, a criminal undergoing the same horrible punishment is able to see that Jesus has done nothing to deserve such treatment. Even after Christ cries out and breathes his last, what does a Roman centurion say? He's able to see what the criminal saw. This, by the way, centurion would have been in charge of the crucifixion of Christ as well as the two criminals. He oversaw the nailing of Christ to the cross, beating, and now he's turned whistleblower. Certainly this man was innocent, he says. And then it spreads. Luke says, verse 48, All the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. They came out to see a spectacle. They came out to gawk, be entertained by watching people suffer, but they went home beating their breasts, which is an expression of deep sorrow, deep grief, regret, remorse. They sense that something horrific happened, and they are truly disturbed. And this after, again, thousands of men, even women, were crucified before Christ. They had seen crucifixions before. From this one, they go home beating And then we meet Joseph of Arimathea, member of the council, again, one of those religious leaders. We saw some of them earlier, but he wasn't part of that same group. He wasn't trying to start the chant or save yourself. He had not consented to their decision, had not consented to their action. It was a no vote. And now he goes to Pilate and asks for permission to bury the body of Jesus. The bodies of the crucified were not treated this way. It was much more efficient for the cross's goal and purposes to leave them nailed up to rot. A worm is not given proper burial after it's gleefully destroyed. But a leader of the council asks to give Jesus a proper burial, and Pilate grants the request. Now, we don't know why. We don't know Pilate's motives. We did, do know that he was aware of Jesus' innocence the whole time, which only makes his actions worse, of course. 
But whatever his motivation, Pilate consents that Jesus' body is carefully wrapped and laid in a tomb where no one had ever been laid before a new grave. His body treated with dignity, treated as human. You see the cross already failing to dehumanize him. My point is this, that even before Sunday rolls around and the stone rolls away, we see the cross failing to do what the Romans had designed it for. It was designed to erase a person entirely who couldn't erase Jesus. Instead, Christ has made a deeper impression by his death, arguably, than he had made in his entire life of death. The cross was meant to lay guilt and shame upon a person so that even those who might have supported them would now only see the shame, now be forced to forget or deny or even condemn it. Who can stand by someone while the crowds are reveling in their humiliation and destruction, while their humanity is systematically dismantled for all to see? The cross was the ultimate cancel culture, but it failed. Why? Not because it failed to lay guilt and shame on Jesus. Through the cross, the guilt and shame earned by the whole world, full of sin, were laid on Jesus. The cross failed to erase Jesus because the guilt failed to mar his perfect innocence. The shame failed to diminish the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The sins of the world were overwhelmed, drowned in the ocean of his perfect righteousness. I like the lyric that Sean sang earlier, that at the cross, the glory of the Godhead danced on death. So Christ, the light of the world, shined in the darkness, and the darkness failed to overcome him. All the darkness of our transgressions applied to him were overwhelmed by the light of his grace, so even as he was condemned for our sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The record of our death is canceled because in Christ it was crucified, nailed to the cross. Guilt, shame, and sin for us who believe they have died forever on the cross. Jesus only died for three days. Sunday's resurrection is the victory that Christ won by Friday's defeat. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, given him the name that is above every name. The empty tomb is proof that the cross is effective, that Christ, by his death, has conquered death. By his death, he went straight to the root death and of all suffering, he condemns sin in the flesh. Let me silence my phone. <laughs> supposed to silence itself, but the text that I would Well, an illustration. We live in a world full of thorns and thistles back to Genesis, it's the wages of sin and the curse that is upon the ground, the world brings forth thorns and thistles. But in Christ, those thorns and thistles have been cut at the root. Now dry thorns can still cut and still scratch for a season, but not for long. 
When the time comes, they are burned to ash. The empty tomb is the evidence that Christ survived everything that was laid on him at the cross. He survived the condemnation, he survived the shame, he survived the pain, he even ends up surviving death <coughs> And every one of those weapons that was laid on him to erase him was itself erased. He is not forgotten, but one day shame and pain and even death itself will be forgotten by those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ is alive, and we will outlive our sin. Christ is alive, and we will outlive our guilt. Christ is alive, and we will outlive our shame. Christ is alive, and we will outlive temptation. Christ is alive, and we will outlive condemnation. Christ is alive, and the saints will outlive persecution. Christ is alive, and you will outlive fear. Christ is alive, and you will outlive trauma. Christ is alive, and you will outlive sorrow and grief. Christ is alive, and you will outlive loneliness. Christ is alive. We will outlive poverty. Christ is alive and we will outlive injustice. Christ is alive and we will outlive pain. Christ is alive and we will outlive the scorn of the world. Christ is alive and we will outlive the attacks of the enemy. Christ is alive, so we will outlive death. Fourth century preacher by the name of John Chrysostom wrote, beginning with words of Paul from 1 Corinthians, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Christ is risen and you are abolished. Christ is risen and the demons are cast down. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life is freed. Christ is risen and the tomb is emptied of the dead. For Christ, being risen from the dead, has become the leader and reviver of those who had fallen asleep. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. We serve a risen Savior. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, we never would have heard of him. But because Jesus has risen from the dead, nothing can ever be the same for us. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom we, by our sin, crucified was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. He now reigns and will reign until all enemies are crushed under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed will be death, and God will be all in all. So this Easter Sunday, we remember the foundation of our faith. The Christian faith is not merely a means of Coping with fallen life, accepting the world as it is, and learning to live our best lives now. The Christian faith proclaims that there is a new and better life to be lived. The Son of God, by his death and resurrection, has overcome the fallen world. And the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We are crucified with Christ. Therefore, we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. This is the threefold truth, as one hymn writer says, on which our faith depends. 
with this joyful cry, worship begins and ends. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. On this we fix our minds as praying side by side we take the bread and wine from Christ the crucified. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. By this we are upheld when doubt and grief assails our Christian fortitude. And only grace avails. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. This is the threefold truth, which, if we hold it fast, changes the world and us, and brings us home at last. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ is risen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the tomb is empty, it stands open by you, that Christ has blown the door off of death and hell, guilt and shame, condemned sin in his own flesh, that that same flesh is now risen and glorified beyond the reach of all shame and pain, darkness. The first fruits of an entire new creation there in the body of Christ. And we are united to him by faith, all who have trusted in his death and resurrection. That we now, even now, share in his resurrection life, though these bodies still perish. When they do, we will be with our Savior forever. And even as we wait the day that our own bodies are also freed from the grave. We confess that we are often tempted to live as if Christ were still dead. We, in our sinfulness, so easily we are caught up only with what we can see and forget the words that you have spoken. And so we pray that as we go forth, you would guard us from living as if Christ were still dead. When we are faced by temptation to sin, remind us that Jesus is alive. When we are tempted and give in to the temptation and are feeling the sense of guilt and shame, remind us that those guilt, guilt and that shame are defeated by the cross, and that Christ is risen. When we are faced with fear and doubt, remind us that Christ is alive. May we live in the hope of the resurrection. When we suffer pain and sickness, remind us that the thorns and thistles, the curse, the futility of the fall have been crucified as well with Christ. Because he is risen, a new creation awaits us all who trust in him. When we are faced with grief and loss, those we love depart, remind us that because Christ
Christ is risen, there will come a time when we say goodbye to all goodbyes. And if Christ tarries in returning, and we should be faced with our own hour of death, remind us in that moment that the tomb stands open wide, that Christ is risen. Risen indeed. And may we rest ever in the hope of the resurrection, building our whole life and meaning and purpose on that same truth that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. We ask these things in the name of our risen Savior, Christ the Lord. Amen.